If you have a worship guide, I'd like you to turn to the very last page, the inside of the last page. And at the bottom of that, there's a sentence. It's centered. It's italicized. It's right under who are we and where are we going. It says this. The church of the incarnation exists for the glory of God. And we labor with others to help build a great city for all people through a movement of the gospel that brings personal conversions, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal to Harrisonburg and the surrounding region. Now, in that statement are embedded a whole series of values, core values. And since the beginning of September, I've been preaching through these various core values. And this Sunday, we're on the seventh value. We value community formation. If you have a Bible, find our gospel reading. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. And notice what Jesus says to his disciples here. Because this is, this is one of those places in the Bible where we see that if you're committed to Jesus and to his message and to his kingdom, it will drive you to value community. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. Now, when the Bible talks about light... It's usually talking about truth when it's using light in a metaphorical way. It's normally using the metaphor of light to, help, to give us an insight into something about the nature of truth. Light exposes things for what they really are. And when the Bible talks about the light of the world, it's talking about God showing the world the truth of who he is. Now the supreme light of the world is Jesus Christ. He, he, this is a fundamental truth presented in scripture. For example, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus quite clearly says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus himself is the supreme way that God shows the world the truth of who he is. But what we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, is that the other main way that God shows the world who he is, the other main light in the world, it's Christians. So here is the light of the world, Jesus Christ, who says, I'm the light of the world, looking at his followers and saying to them, because of your relationship with me, you're the light of the world. We need to be careful with this, though, because every occurrence of the pronoun you in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, let the world see your good deeds. Every, every time the word you, the second person pronoun, is used in, that, in those sentences, every single time, it's plural. So if Jesus had been from the deep south, he would have said, Y'all are the light of the world. And if he, had been, if he had been speaking Appalachian, Ewans 
Ewan's are the light of the world. And, and what about Pittsburghese? Anybody know? Yens, that's right. Yens are the light of the world. And if he was from the blessed Jersey Shore, use guys. But even y'all are yens or yuans or use guys, these, these don't quite capture what he's, what's going on here. And that's because we live in a culture that is fundamentally individualistic. Identity for Americans is first and foremost self-identity. It is not about groups or solidarity. So even reading Jesus as saying in a more formal translation, y'all are the light of the world, we still tend to instinctively hear him saying, each one of you is a light. And that is not what he's saying. He's not saying each of you are lights. He's saying, as a group, you make a light. Christians show the world the truth of who God is when and only when Christians are a community. It is only as a community that we are actually the light of the world. Individual Christians are not the light of the world. Now, some surveys have indicated that 80% of Americans say you can be a very good Christian without going to church at all. But that is not what the scripture is telling us. You cannot be the light of the world by yourself. Christians can only actually bring light into darkness as a community. The church is absolutely fundamental to God's intent to bring light into the world of darkness as promised for the day of salvation. Because God has a mission, there is a church. If Harrisonburg is going to bear the crater marks of the gospel's impact, it will be through churches that are countercultural communities for the common good. Now, how does this work? Well, our passage of scripture actually has two metaphors. Light, and what's the other metaphor? A city. Now, at first blush, it looks like he's got two different metaphors, but really what he's doing is he's holding up a single kind of idea and he's turning it and looking at it from multiple angles, but it's the same thing. Now, it takes both of these metaphors, though, to open up how it's through the church as a community that the light of God shines into the world. So... How does all of this work? Well, we're going to take each metaphor. Two points this morning. First, the metaphor of light, and second, the metaphor of the city. Each one opens for us, opens up for us the ways in which our community life, our life together, shows the world the truth of who God is. One at a time. First, when it comes to display the truth of who God is, the church as the light of the world is able to do that when the church is the school for love. That's what we see in light. Let me unpack this. The church has the light of the world when the church is a school of love. Remember that relationships are central to being a human. 
They're central to human life. And yet, have you noticed how relationships blow up all the time? Family relationships blow up. Relationships at work. Friendships. And and I'm not just talking about nations and races and things like that. I mean, those relationships, it seems, are blowing up and going into violence and conflict all the time. I'm talking about normal human relationships that have this uncanny way of exploding. People are always getting upset. People are always saying, not fair. I'm not getting what's mine. You've misunderstood me. You've wronged me. People so frequently get angry and bitter, but the work of God in the church as a school of love enables us to show who God is in this world at precisely this point. We see this in our reading this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Listen again to verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And was raised again. So, so you see, the Bible is, is saying here that the deep default mode of the human heart is the act of living for ourselves. It's a me first approach to life. You don't have to teach a little baby me first. Even before they can talk, they act out this kind of posture. And as we grow up, it's not like we stop it. We just hide it, right? And yet the Bible says it's this me first, this kind of selfishness that is the cancer of of humanity. That eats away at our relationships with each other and our relationship with God. But notice how in 2 Corinthians 15, not only is this the problem, this is the point that God comes and deals with us. Notice here that we see God meets our selfishness with love, sheer love, sacrificial love. Not God doing me first love, but God serving us first love, sacrificial love. So God meets this fundamental deforming power with his own self-giving sacrificial love. This is who God is. God is love. Sheer love, all the way to the core of his being. And so we hear in passages like 2 Corinthians 15, both that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who lives for them, dies for them. This is all over the Bible, this idea that the fundamental issue is a profound default mode of the human heart called selfishness, and the solution is a profound, generous mode of God called love. Now, this comes up in another place, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Listen to this. Be kind to one another. Cherish tender feelings for each other. Forgive one another just As God forgave you in the king, in Jesus' act of dying for us. So you should be imitators of God in what? In me first kind of living? No, in this self-sacrificing, outpouring, generous love kind of living. Imitate God in that like dear children. Conduct yourselves in love. 
Just as the Messiah loved us and gave himself for us as a sweet-smelling offering and sacrifice to God. So notice, love is being defined here in a very particular way. It's being defined by the cross, by a sacrificial, generous You, serving you kind of love. And this is the fundamental human problem that shatters us with God, shatters us with each other, shatters us with creation, and it is the fundamental place of meeting with God. We live in a society where the quest for justice degenerates over and over into a demand for rights. My rights. Our rights. But Jesus, he gives us the power and he sets the example for us to no longer walk around insisting on rights. No longer walk around with me first kind of bravado. But he, in Christ and in the church, we can learn how to love. We can learn how to cope with anger. We begin to see and experience how the cross of Jesus and the power of his spirit opens up a way of kindness. Which accepts the fact of anger, but refuses to allow anger to dictate the terms of engagement. The kingdom of God in Christ doesn't merely make us closer to one another in our relationships. It creates a counter cultural, a contrast community in which people can see the kingdom of God. They can see the nature of God being put on display, being made plain, being made visible by a group of people who've experienced the death blow of the cross to me first living. It's in Christ, in the life of the church, in our life together, that we can experience the death blow to selfishness. And we can learn humility. Look, love and humility have to be learned. They have to be learned. And so it's in the church that we can learn humility, this serious and sustained effort of considering others as better than ourselves. And it's in Christ, in the life of the church, that we're called forth to a deeper and different kind of love. The kind of love that is other-directed and sacrificial. And rather than the comfort of mutual affirmation, which our world tends to call love, but that's just romance. It's in Christ, in the life of the church, that we learn patience. The capacity to be present to suffering, including the suffering of the mundane aspects of life together. Our small groups, our life together as a church, we need to think of them as schools of love. Because love is learned. And if we're going to learn it, we're going to have to devote ourselves to loving in these communities, in our small groups, in our youth group, in our life together. A church has been, the church has been and can be the kind of community where we can learn to love. And it's as we learn to love that we put on display the very essence of God. That, that the, the, the truest truth of God is love. And so it's as a school of love that we begin to shine out into the world. It's in the church where we we are daily living out 
the practices of mind and heart and body and speech that form the capacity to love. As a church, we're not merely a refuge from the world. We are a school of love because only when we do this, only when we understand that we learn to love, you can only learn to love in community, will we overcome the individualism that is the besetting sin of American society today. The me-first loyalty that is the default mode of the human heart. And so we can learn how to be the kind of people who go into our workplaces and, and who go into friendships and into our families. We can be the kinds of people who because the cross has gone all the way down into the center of our identity and it's not just a fact but it is a power that begins to form us. We can be the kind of people who go into workplaces and go into friendships and go into family and we are not turf conscious. And we overlook slights. And we are not irritable. The work of God centered in the community of life in the church makes us into the kind of people who can be good citizens. You, y'all, youans are the light of the world. So it's only as a community that we actually illumine, show the world the truest truth of God. The sacrificial love poured out in Jesus Christ. It's through our community life that we are formed into light. Okay, so like I said, there are two metaphors here. And they open up for us what it means to be the light of the world. What it means for us to, to, to show into the world who God is. First is the image of light. We saw that. Now the second is the metaphor of the cell phone. Totally joking. Whoever, <laughs> whoever that was, that, that you're okay. Tom Perkins will probably do it next week, so don't worry. <laughs> the second metaphor is the metaphor of a city. A city. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill. Christians show the world the truth of who God is when Christians function as a city. As a city. Now, do you know what, do you know what slogans are? Slogans are suitcases. A slogan is a code word that, that you pack in a whole lot of stuff. Right? So Republican, that's a code word. That's a suitcase. And it, it's good for kind of quickly identifying something, but you still got to unpack it and, and explain exactly what you mean. Light is a rich, thick metaphor in the Bible. I mean, you cannot read Jesus talking about light out of the context of the very first part of the Bible saying, talking about the creation of light and then following that all the way. You cannot take the metaphor of a city and just bootleg into it any meaning you bring by your culture. This is, this is the metaphor of a city in the, in the fabric of a massive meta-narrative that runs, you know, a thousand pages long, several thousand pages long. What, what, what is this concept of the city that Jesus is opening up for us? What I want to do to help us get a hold of the whole Bible's filling in of that metaphor, I want to tell a story. 
It's a story that I learned from somebody else, a pastor in Charlottesville by the name of Greg Thompson. He was the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church. Here's the story. I want you to imagine a woman. Let's say she lived sometimes, sometime between the 2nd century and the 16th century. A very broad period of history. And let's say she lived somewhere, generally speaking, in the region of Mediterranean, the Mediterranean region. She could live as far south as northern Africa, as far east as northern Iraq. She could live as far north as northern France or even England or Scotland for the Napotniks, or as far west as modern-day Spain. Now, I want you to imagine that she is, out of some terrible event, obliged to make her way on a journey across that remote world. So she leaves whatever shelter has been hers, and she steps out into the darkness I want you to imagine her as she steps out onto her path and she bends her long and lonely course towards whatever town or village or city that holds her hopes. In all likelihood, day after day, she scans the horizon for one thing. Do you know what she's looking for? A church. A church. Sometimes these churches were huge cathedrals. Rising up with stone filled with light. Sometimes they're very small parishes tucked away on quaint little roads that some of you have traveled down and they're filled with warmth. Sometimes they're monasteries tucked behind walls and filled with song. But no matter which kind of church it is, they all share one thing in common. What they share in common is the fundamental commitment to be the faithful presence of love. In that world. To be the faithful presence of love. In that society. In that culture. And this is why she would look for a church. Because of all the things she could know about the church. The one thing she would certainly know. And most people didn't. And most people knew this. Was that the church was a place. Whose very purpose. Was to be light in the darkness. To be rest for the restless. Its purpose was to be the presence of love in all of the ravaging absences of the world. In fact, most of these churches had rule books for how to do this, manuals written for how you carried out this work. They had rule books for what to do when a traveler showed up. I'm going to read from one of them. This is the Benedictine rules. It was written in the 6th century. Quote, all guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. For he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And once a guest has been announced, the superior and the brothers or sisters are to meet with him with all the courtesy of love. The abbot shall pour water on the hands of the guest. And the abbot with the entire community shall wash their feet. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor people and pilgrims. Because in them in particular is Christ received into the church. Isn't that amazing? And the amazing thing is that that documents like this were all over the place. 
And in all of these documents, we, we, see, we see that the church had a conviction that the church's job was to be a presence in the absence of, world, of the absences of the world, to be the presence of love to the world. Now just imagine with this woman and hundreds of thousands like her and other men and women and children, just imagine what life was like for them and what was missing in their life. Some were hungry, driven by the absence of food. Some were diseased, driven by the absence of care. Some were exploited, driven by the absence of justice. And some were sinners, driven by the absence of grace. And can you see these people making their way, scanning the horizon, looking for the church? And in finding the church at the end of those long, tiresome days, what would they find? Well, we know. History tells us. And this is so amazing. They would find personal care. Careful attention to the most intimate needs that human beings have. I want you to think about this. Because in the lighted windows, they found the consolation of knowing they were no longer alone after a day of walking alone. And in the open doors, they found the sound and the presence of welcome. And in embrace, they found the return of their dignity. And in the kitchens, they found fullness and joy. Think about it. Warm bread, stew, the gladness of wine. And inside the walls, they found rooms and rest. And in the farewell the next day, they they found warmer clothes and heavier bags and the benediction of the church for their onward journey. That's what they found. They found very personal care. But they also found public care, public concern. And this is important to understand because when they came to churches, what they found were communities of men and women who were concerned not just for individuals, but for the cities in which they were located. It's the church in the past centuries that invented education for children. It's the church that invented and nurtured systems of the moral and intellectual formation of children. It's the church who began to develop structures of economics that protected the vulnerable and law. It's the church that began to create art and music for the good of all those neighbors. So you see, they would find not only personal care, but public concern. And I want you to try to see people still today devastated by absences, looking. But the difference is they're not looking for the church today. We're no longer a community whose influence or advice or wisdom is valued. That ship has sailed. But we must still be a community of welcome and love. We must be a community in whose kitchens and chapels and and in the courtroom and in the public court square, we are being a presence of love that plays out on both a public level and a personal level, on both an institutional level and an individual level, corporately and civically. This is what it means for the church to be a city. It means it's an ecology, an ecosystem of institutions and structures. It's it's something more than the aggregate of individuals. To be a city on a hill that's a light in that world, 
This is what it means to be. You see, to be a church is not only to be a school of love. It's to be the place of hospitality. Because the love that we learn is an other-focused love. The love that we learn that's cultivated in our rich and thick community life is a love that overflows and reaches out to neighbors. Hospitality is the public side of love. Because when we accept Jesus' invitation into the love that is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, when we open our lives to that generative love, that sacrificial love, that, that reaching out to the absent places love, when we open our lives to that, what comes into us is not romance. Not the mutuality of self-affirmation. What comes into us is a generous Outward moving love, not a selfish love. And as we grow into that love, it makes us into the place of hospitality. Matthew chapter 5 verse 14, you're the light of the world, a city set on a hill. If you want God's truth to come into your life and to change you, If you want God's truth to go out into the world and enlighten a darkened world, you must be a part of Christian community that is a city. And that does not mean showing up a couple of times a month to worship. Showing up to worship once or twice or three times a month, that's not being a part of a city. That's not being a part of a community. That's not being a part of an alternate counterculture for the common good. No, to be a part of the city of God. It's to live with a group of people to whom you are accountable. Live with a group of people who teach you. With whom you learn the implications of the gospel for art and for business and for how you relate to your neighbor. Are you a part of God's city? Are you really a part of a church? This church? and There are lots of good churches in this town. Are you really a part of one? Are you trying to be this little light of mine? It doesn't work. I mean, it sings cool. Are you a citizen of the city? Are you a part of the community? Are you seeming it in? Are you a participant? I hope that you are. I pray that you will be.